Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hi everyone, welcome to our latest episode of Anthropotamus. We're here with Dr. Alex Friedes, going to discuss her article on looking smart race and academic ability in a diversifying middle school. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. I know we've been trying to schedule this for a good minute, but I'm very excited to discuss this article with you. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the article, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and what got you into uh, specializing in education? Um, sure. So I think my what got me into education is more what I would say that uh, education got me into anthropology more than anthropology got me into education. Uh, before I went into academia, I was a teacher. And I also did a lot of work doing uh, supporting teachers in various kinds of schools. So I did work in Berkeley, California, and in other parts of the Bay Area, and then also in New York City and other parts of the East Coast. Um, And after spending about almost 15 years working in schools, I had a lot of questions and not a lot of answers about why things were operating the way they were and how they might be different. So I returned to graduate school. And I studied um, urban education at NYU with Dr. Pedro Nogueira, and that uh, led to my to the study and my research. So I have to say, read. So your article discusses how basically students view themselves, um, how they, I guess, view themselves in regards to how intelligent they are among their peers, and then their social status, and. I have to admit, reading the article, it was almost a little, made me a little anxious because I was having flashbacks of my childhood and middle school and being like the smart kid that got bullied. And I'm like, oh my God, I hate group activities. And I was like, why, why do we have group activities? Um, So yeah, it was a little, uh, I almost felt a little personal for me reading it. Um, But before we go get into that, um, going on to a tangent here. Um, so a term I was not familiar with was tracked and untracked schools. What exactly does that mean? Sure. So tracking is a way we talk in education about how classrooms are organized and how students are sorted into classrooms. So while you might not be familiar with the term, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the experience of there being high, middle, and low math classes or possibly, depending on the school, high, middle, and low. And those are those math classes would be called tracked. And at some schools, there's overall tracking, which means that it's not just individual classes that are tracked, but um, students are sorted into permanent tracks that go across academic subjects. So there's an honors track, not just an honors class, which is, and those honors classes are tracked, but there's an honors track where every student in the track takes classes that are considered advanced or more rigorous than students who are in what might be called the regular track or the remedial track. So you can think about tracking either as a way of sorting students within the school where they fall into a certain track and then they take all those, all the classes with kids who are also in that track and it's a universal thing. So they're in honors, if they're in honors English, they're also in honors math, honors social studies, etc. Or you can think about it on a class-by-class basis so that even schools 
that are might not be otherwise tracked frequently do have tracked math programs in particular. Hmm. Okay. So um, people do have a tendency to act differently when they know they're being observed. So do you think that the teachers and students change their classroom behavior knowing you were watching them and did it did you see a difference in classroom behavior over time uh based on how comfortable they became with you so i know that uh some people not generally cultural anthropologists have a lot of concerns about the impact of observers on behavior i don't tend to have a lot of concerns about that and i don't generally see it in the settings I observe. When you think about public school classrooms, there's actually, it's very common in most schools for people to come in and out of classrooms all the time, either to do formal observations, in which case they are usually observing the teacher, not students, although sometimes they might be there to watch a particular student, or just for other reasons. it's been a long time in our country since like the idea was that you went into a classroom and you shut the door and people didn't come in. It's pretty common. And in my experience, it does not change a lot of the behavior. That being said, I certainly did see a lot of behavior change over the course of the school year. I was in this particular school for two to three days a week, every day, every week for the entire school year. And certainly the way that sixth graders and sixth grade teachers acted changed a lot from the beginning of the year to the end of the year in a lot of ways that you might or might not be able to anticipate. And I can't say that none of that was about their concerns about my observations or their awareness of me. But what I saw was a lot more change in how people interacted as they as students got to know each other because they were new to school, as they got to know the teachers, as teachers felt like norms had been established in their classroom for behavior or as teachers tried to alter those norms. I saw a lot more variation in those kinds of um, ways over the course of the school year and much less about my presence. The one way where I might say I saw a little more awareness of me was when I was not observing whole class interactions, but I was pulling up to a small group. Because obviously it's pretty different to have somebody sitting in the back of a classroom with 28 kids in it than it is to have somebody sitting at the table with three or four kids in it. Um, But even that, I found that while kids might initially be a little bit quiet or glancing at me for guidance, once they realized that it was not my job to tell them what to do, that I wasn't a teacher, they quickly moved on and did what they were going to do anyway, including, like, in many cases – not doing their work, which was part of how I knew that they really didn't care that I was there because they certainly um, didn't act like they cared that I was there. So in the beginning of your article, you discuss um, a student you call Derek who refers to his intelligence as basically average to the rest of his class, but he was on honor roll um, I found it interesting how it was students almost used honor roll in a way to prove to themselves that they were smart, I guess. I don't know if that's the right wording for that. But in your opinion, do you think that honor roll is something that should be publicly announced? Uh, do you find it that it is beneficial encouraging students or do you find it that it may actually be discouraging 
So I'm just going to take a beat here and, and back up a bit because I think this okay. is important to understanding uh, the argument I'm making in the article. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not say that Derek is of average intelligence. Right. I'm not even sure what that, that frame would mean. Um, I would say that Derek did not think of himself as good. And this is what he told me, that he was not good at being smart. And I think that's really important to stop and think through. Um, because I think I know that the way we talk about smartness in this country is something you have or you don't have, something you are or you're not. And what Derek's comment is really pointing to us there is a way that students think about smartness as something that you do and you can be good at doing or not doing. So that smartness itself is not about like, are you smart? Are you intelligent? It's about can you perform a certain kind of way of interacting with the world in school? And so when we think about honor rolls, I think that honor rolls do very accurately reflect are students good at demonstrating a certain, that way of interacting with the world? Are they good at following directions in class? Are they good at completing assignments? Are they good at performing and demonstrating all the things they've learned? I would argue that those are not necessarily at all the same thing as being smart or being intelligent. Um, And I think that having honor rolls in school and having grades in school on which the honor rolls are built encourages students to focus on these tasks of demonstrating knowledge for an external observer, of being compliant, um, rather than on their learning. The uh, What you were just talking about reminded me of this book called A Hunter in a Farmer's World. Um, yeah, so I, it reminds me of this book called ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World. And the reason it reminds me of that is because they go into the um, the problem of modern education systems being designed for a very specific type of intelligence and very specific type of um, thought process, which people who have ADHD don't line up with. They don't have the same type of intelligence or response types. Uh, And something like the honor roll system is very much geared towards people who can sit and focus on one thing and see the benefits of the future and you know far in advance and actually work towards that singular goal where somebody with ADHD is much better geared towards something like reacting in the, the moment they don't necessarily do very well in a situation where you're measured on your uh, strict attention span Uh, What we know about neurodiversity challenges a lot of the ways that we set up schools, as well as even individuals who do. There's a fair amount of neuroscience research at this point that shows that even individuals who do not have ADHD diagnoses, that for most of us, our brains work better with movement, our brains work better with breaks, um, that the way to sit and get a test done is often not to sit and get it done, but to be fluid about how we move back and forth between tasks in ways that contemporary arrangements of schooling do not allow. 
I think, and I think this is like one of the hardest concepts for many of us to grasp that even more fundamentally, it's not about whether students with ADHD are more or less smart or even differently smart than other students as much as what I'm trying to argue in this piece is that the way that intelligence itself is uh, is a, a construct that does not have a lot of um, validity, that the way we think about intelligence is really shaped by um, its origins in the eugenics movement. And therefore, a lot of our assumptions about intelligence as something that can be measured or quantified or performed or demonstrated by students is only going to shift us away from what the point of school actually is, which is to learn. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. So in essence, the, the way that we think about intelligence and the way that we develop our education system being very much grown around our, um, well, our culture's former ideals or evolving ideals, it very it somewhat pigeonholes people into a specific category, right? Right, and it and it helps us believe that the function of schools mm-hmm. is to sort kids, mm-hmm. right? And it's our that so our goal with the schools is to assess what kids are able to do and to measure their the extent to which they are doing that, rather than to nurture them to work for our collective liberation. To, I get to develop them as community members or as individuals. You know, I wanted to bring it back a little bit to the topic of race. You were discussing the discrimination, I, I believe, that basically how race impacts grades with a group of students and how how they would feel if, or their how their reaction would be if, uh, if it was like a majority of white students who were who were uh, receiving the higher grades, um, which I felt found interesting because at the same time it was there seemed to be their own school where a large percentage of the students making honor roll were white. I, I didn't know if you would uh, want to go uh, deeper into that. So yeah, I gave this focus group a hypothetical situation in which only 20% of the students in the school were white, but the majority of percentages of students on the honor roll were white, which did indeed reflect pretty closely what was happening in their school. And students, the sixth graders found that really outrageous they found it really appalling. They were very clear that that meant that there must be something wrong with what the school was doing. Um, that there is no way that that should be what's happening. And they in no way, perhaps most interestingly to me, put the responsibility on the students. They really believed that it meant that the school was being racist or the school was doing something wrong, which was interesting given that they also really loved, this was their the hypothetical school must be doing something wrong but they loved and defended their actual school and said that that could, they actually said to me that could never happen here. 
because our school is anti-racist. So the school had a very strong anti-racist identity. Um, it was in really strong contrast to what teachers talked to me about the situation with this, with the honor roll at their school, where they gave me all kinds of reasons why these patterns were happening. And in many ways, they held individual kids or kids and their families responsible. Um, not held them responsible is in, is not the most accurate way of saying it. They did not blame kids, but they said, well, it's because of these differences among families or it's these differences in resources. And they did not see it as an outcome of what was going on in the school. They saw it as an outcome of what was going on outside the school. Um, so there's a couple of interesting things about that, right? One is that kids were less likely than adults to consider the students or the families responsible for the academic, the, the disparities in academic outcomes. And another is that adults were more likely than kids to recognize the racial patterns in what was happening with academic achievement at the school. That is surprising and it's not. Um, it's not surprising that 10 and 11 year olds who really loved their school and were very happy at their school in general and felt very supported by the school would not want, would not recognize this, what they would, they considered a major failing on the part of the school. Like they wouldn't be able to reconcile those two, right? So they would deny it. They would not make the connection. It's also not surprising that adults who have had a lot of training and thinking about racial disparities just from living in our country for longer than kids, uh, although kids have also had a fair amount of training, um, would have these kind of ready-made ex explanations that echo a lot of what you see in academic literature or in popular culture. Yeah, I thought that was even more interesting because I think it was later on that you had the, uh, there was at one point only two black students in the honor roll and they recognized that they were the only two there. Right. So this is like particularly interesting because the kids who did not recognize it were not black kids mm. on the on the honor roll. So one thing I would argue is that it um, that if you are the child who has this experience of being at like an honor roll breakfast for everybody in all three grades who's been on the honor roll and you're one of two black kids in a room of many kids, you don't you can't you're going to notice that <laughs> that's a lived experience that, that you notice and you work to make sense of. And that if you are a child who has not witnessed that directly because you haven't been in the honor roll, or if you are a white child who's in that room, you might not notice in the same way. But that everybody is learning something from that experience. Certainly black kids on the honor roll are learning that they are the exceptions, that there's not a community for of kids like them among the honor roll, that, um, that they are in some ways considered different from other kids on the honor roll and other black kids. Certainly uh, white kids are learning to take for granted the assumption that whiteness correlates with smartness or academic achievement. And certainly kids who are not on the honor roll, if they're learning nothing else, are learning that they've been sorted into a group of kids who are not smart. You do discuss a lot about group assignments. 
can I just get your opinion like on I mean our group I mean everybody hates doing group activities in class <laughs> when the teacher says we're doing a group activity everyone's like ah no but I mean is it really beneficial for students to work together or or not or your personal opinion um so I don't think everybody always hates working in group activities in class. I think that everybody has experience with poorly constructed group activities <laughs> and, and, and is quick to remember those experiences correctly. Um, but I don't think that it's inevitable that, that uh, students are going to hate working on group activities. Like I've been in many classrooms where they enjoy it because they get to be social while they work because they know that other kids have strengths any number of reasons. Um, I do think that group cooperative learning has the potential to be really useful um, in class. I think that there's a lot of reasons as a former teacher, certainly, why I use those activities a lot. I think um, you can expect a group of kids to come up with more than to be more than some of its parts to come up with new ideas and to build on each other's thinking if you set them up appropriately to do so i think that um kids have a lot to learn from each other and that um they get really bored of listening to teachers so giving them opportunities to do that is really important and that they can construct new knowledge together i also think that there are a ton of pitfalls that even teachers who are really good at structuring group activities um, or really experienced in doing it are aware, like, I think any teacher who uses group activities a lot and is thoughtful about it, even some, even if they think they are generally successful and that they are worth it, says, oh, there's so many things that can go wrong. <laughs> um, and I mean, there really is like an almost limitless list of things that can go wrong. Um, I think it's important to note here when I say group activities, I don't necessarily mean like a big group project, right? Like every time that you are teaching and you have kids turn to each other and talk at a table about a topic, that's a group activity. That's an mm -hmm. opportunity for cooperative planning. Um, but my main concern in this paper and is something that I don't think I was really aware of when I was teaching, it took observing for me to see it, which was that, there was just a very clear pattern of kids being set up as like some kids are there to teach each other the group and some kids are there to learn so that it wasn't really a mutual learning exercise or a opportunity for kids to construct new knowledge together. Instead, it was this person is helping this person. This person is the expert and this person is the novice. Mm -hmm. And so when that's the assumption and that's the setup it, it does a couple of really damaging things. Um, it means that kids are, that kind of places kids in binaries in the same way that the, the honor roll does. is like either there to learn or there to be taught. They either know things or they don't. Um, it discounts, it sets in, in doing so, it tends to put kids who have the most prior knowledge, which is often things that come from outside of the classroom or outside of the school, in the position as teachers. Um, and positioning kids who have different kinds of experiences or different kinds of knowledge in the position as learners. Um, and it is often in the same way that the honor roll is often quite racialized so that often those kids who are set up as, as the experts or the teachers 
are more likely in a diverse classroom to be white. And the kids who are set up as the learners or the recipients or the beneficiaries of the group, of the group experience are in a diverse classroom more, less likely to be white. And that again, sends people messages about who knows things and who doesn't. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting that the, you had the one student who was always the leader in the group. And then there was that example you had of the students get together to discuss the three little pigs. And you had the one, one student who had all the answers, but the other two students didn't want to listen to him. One of the things that teachers can tell you is the most exciting and the most challenging about group activities is that they do build in social interactions, right? And that is great. Like kids learn in social, we are humans are social beings. We learn from social interactions and also there, it can be quite complicated uh, interpersonal dynamics, especially among pre-adolescent and adolescent kids. So um, you both are building on this strength and you also have a situation where you're managing social dynamics um, and those can be hard. So in your conclusion, you discussed some questions that basically teachers should be asking themselves to create a, a more um, equal playing field for their students within the, the classroom environment. Can you go ahead and go over some of those, those questions uh, with our listeners? Sure. So I think one of the first things that teachers need to think about is that while they see their students in class, their students see each other inside and out of class, right? And there's all kinds of things that people are bringing into the classroom um, that are not about the day's lesson. I mean, anybody who's attended middle school or high school can speak to this, right? So one of the things I think students need to, teachers really need to ask themselves and talk with their students about is like, well, what are you learning from each other? And what are, and like those can be positive things or negative things, but what are you bringing, what are these kids bringing into the classroom with them? And they can be careful observers in their classrooms to try to notice those things, but they also can directly talk with students about those things. And they can talk with students about their experiences with grades, with small group learning, with any of these things that are kind of how we assume school is done and that also are quite racialized. They can, teachers can ask their students about those things. What have, what have you noticed about this? What do you think about this? And they can do that, you know, in quiet moments in class. They can do it for a couple minutes before or after class as kids are getting settled or packing up. They could do it over lunch. There's a lot of ways they can do it that does not have to be a huge investment in time or a, you know, a capital R research project. Um, another thing that's uh, teachers can think about is how their own classroom and their school might be reinforcing these academic hierarchies. So look, like grades are a part of school as we know it. There are schools that have moved away from formal grading systems, but they are generally not public schools and there are very few of them. So grades might be a fact of life in school, but teachers can ask themselves, well, how are I using grades to me? And what kind of what am I trying to communicate with them and what am I actually communicating with them? Because grades get used for a lot of different things. They get used as a measurement in reference to a standard. They get used as a way of giving feedback to, to kids. They get used as a way of giving feedback to families. They get used as a as an incentive or a, as a punishment based on for student behavior. And so teachers can really think pretty carefully about, well, what am I actually trying to achieve with this tool? of grades and, and what are my actual, what are the outcomes in terms of how kids are thinking about their own capacity, their own smartness, 
and where they belong in like an academic hierarchy of class. Uh, teachers can also think pretty carefully about how they're designing small groups and uh, less activities, um, whether they are setting up some kids to always be the experts and other kids to always be in the position of being novices. They can think about whether how they and how they can notice and, and note to the class the wide range of skills, knowledge, and questions that various students bring into the class, and how they can help students start to notice those things for themselves. Um, and they can have a, a pretty honest conversation in their classrooms about what smartness is or what smartness means and what it doesn't mean, and what are the different ways that it might mean to look smart in their class. I did have a random question. Why Why did you choose sixth grade? I chose sixth grade because, well, for a lot of reasons. One is because I love sixth graders and when you're doing ethnographic work, it's really important, I think, to enjoy where you are if possible. But in addition to that, um, I was really interested, this was part of a larger study of schools and gentrifying areas of New York City that were becoming more diverse. So they were schools that had previously served almost exclusively black and Latinx students and were starting to have an experience of white students or in some cases white and Asian students. Um, and I wanted to understand how the school community members were making sense of that change, what they were learning from that change. And so it was important in this in this school, I looked at sixth graders, this was the first grade of the middle school and in the elementary school I looked at, I looked at kindergartners because that was where the point of entry was for this for the school, and it was it, it therefore surfaced a lot more of these um, ideas and messages than places where kids and teachers had already kind of established reputations and already had an, a story in their head about what was going on. I think that'd be interesting analyzing kindergartners their first experience in in school. Um, is there anything uh, that we haven't discussed that you would like to comment on? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Les, anything else you have? I would just ask if there's anything that we can look out for in the future from you. Um, I'm working on a book and some of this material in which I look at some of this material from new points of view, but it's going to be a little while until it's out. I keep hoping it will be sooner and it not at the rate I'm going, honestly, but I have, you can keep your eyes out for about a year and a half or two. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.